Hello. Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah. I'm a Catholic. I'm Liz. I'm a witch. And welcome back to Saints and Witches, where we tell each other stories about saints and, you guessed it, witches. What's new with you, buddy? Um, pass. <laughs> <laughs> I will also pass. <laughs> uh, sick cats, life's a disaster. What? What's new? Um, yeah injured cat life's a disaster yeah the holidays are fast approaching um it's pumpkin beer season i yeah i mean i walked in the other day and there was fucking apple cider out on all their shelves i'm like Mm -hmm. it is 95 degrees outside (laughs) but boy am i excited (laughs) to see that apple cider oh yeah big time i had two cups of hot apple cider today what's the temperature like up there it's like 72 it's perfect dude (laughs) you're fucking kidding me (laughs) i'm still running the ac on full blast (laughs) i mean i am too but only because i like it cold um but i was thinking you need to come visit again because we have a new we have a new store in town and it's like a cute little witchy store (gasps) They have many, uh, many, many things. Well, now that gas is not $5 a gallon, <laughs> um, I might have to find some time to come do that. Yeah. And I know I need to visit Carbondale too. I haven't been there in forever. I feel so, bad. What's what's to visit? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it has like wineries and... That's true. We we do have that. We have some lakes. We have yeah. some wine. It's really pretty, not in Carbondale, but around Carbondale. In the vicinity mm-hmm. of Carbondale. <laughs> Nearby. Not, not particularly where I live. No, not like the town center. No, and they've been redoing the roads for like two months, so it's garbage central. <laughs> like the entirety of like 13 from like Murfreesboro mm-hmm. um, to Carterville, they've repaved the whole way. Did it even need that? I mean, I, I guess I haven't been not, there in a long not time. Not really. Yeah. Um, it's really nice now, but it has been absolute terror to drive yeah. on. Potholes, mm-hmm. gravel flying all over the place. Every time you left, you had no idea which section of the road was going to mm-hmm. be blocked off and they were not going to put up signs. Um, <laughs> so sometimes I would just like turn out of my apartment get to a road and then it would be completely like barricaded off and Mm -hmm. then there was like seven people behind me and (laughs) we couldn't turn around because more people just kept pulling up to the blocked off road it's like can we turn around can somebody just recognize this is happening Mm -hmm. can we fix this can we use our eyeballs please but that would be every day that you're like, all right, I'm going to turn on this road. Oh, no, nope. nope. traffic cones. Um, mm-hmm. I don't live in this area, so we're just going <laughs> to blindly drive around in the direction of where I'm supposed to be going and see mm-hmm. if I get there. Yeah. And the I GPS the is country like... In the middle of, middle of the night, it was like 11 p.m. Absolutely just not. Drove through the darkness. I'm like, well, I'm headed east theoretically i'll get back to carpentale you're gonna meet the big muddy monster out in the <laughs> woods scary oh, at, at this point though i kind of welcome it mm-hmm. no i'd love to meet him but me too hello sir 
<laughs> Hello, <Big> sir. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> Heard so much about you. <laughs> Do people, Can I get an autograph? <laughs> people probably have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> the big muddy monster. Probably not. It's one of those local <laughs> things. Yeah. It is the he's the mascot of Southern Illinois. He's our local cryptid. Yes. He's a Bigfoot type figure. Mm-hmm. But he's sort of in a in a realm of his own. Um, what's that story by Josh Woods? We should tell people to read it. Um, Is that just, the one where they're all like gathered together in that weird meeting and they're chanting and stuff and it's yeah. just fucking hilarious? Yeah, him, Josh and Pinkney and Kermit. Um, yes. Just look up Josh Woods' Big Muddy Monster. I think it's available Just online. Pick up that collection. Yeah, of what's his it? Books. Um, oh, monstrous world. Yeah, he's a good writer. Just read his stuff; it's fantastic. He also yeah. has a podcast. Go listen to his podcast. Yeah, the Monster Professor. I think we talked about it a few times before. Mm-hmm. We haven't done that in a while, though. So shameless plug. He's mm-hmm. really smart and funny and fantastic so yeah and he also like actually has like a (laughs) well-researched podcast (laughs) yeah which is why he has like uh semi-famous people on his show occasionally like he does his job (laughs) unlike us (laughs) we're here hang out in our like grimy bedrooms (laughs) (laughs) oh god speaking of grimy um should we get to it yeah we should let's go for it okay let's do it i decided to uh narrow the scope of my initial research just a little bit um because talking a lot and the whole wisdom tooth pain um don't pair super well Mm -hmm. um it took me a while to settle on a topic this week I looked up like 20 little known cases across Europe, um, but they either didn't have enough info, their info didn't grab my attention, um, or their info put me like right back in the muck of a case that I literally just discussed. And I swear to God, if I have to talk about James the first too many times in a row, I'm gonna blow my brains out. Yeah. So fair. uh, Yeah, I'll circle back to some of those trials once I have a bit more distance. Um, But that leaves me telling the story of uh, two women today, um, stories of two women today, um, who lived in Ireland in the 1800s. The first is a woman named Moll Anthony, who's more of a legend than she is a real woman. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look into Moll, you're not going to find a bunch of academic articles or official websites that ended like .gov or that belong to like the country of Ireland or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly blogs and tourist pages and like these little niche websites that host stories. Um, and every version you find of mall story is different. Like there are very few threads that run all the way through all of them. Mm-hmm. It definitely gives you like the oral tradition kind of feel yeah Um, that I heard this I'm writing writing it down um I like that I do too which is one of the reasons that I picked it 
mm-hmm. um, as my first stories. I just found it fascinating um, that it definitely felt like a, a community that had told this story so many times that it had just become a lot of things. Yeah. So all of the people I got this story from, none of them are really scholars. No one has any citations for anything. Not even mm-hmm. like my granddad told me. It's just literally here is the story. They you know, just have this interesting account of a woman named Maul. And I'm going to smush the accounts together where possible, just because there's so many and they differ so widely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to give you like the alternate version of events where I cannot synthesize details. Cool. So Maul, according to legend, is the daughter of a man named Anthony Dunn. Um, and instead of going by Maul Dunn, Maul went by Maul Anthony, which is her father's first name. Um, I guess to distinguish uh, herself, because there were so many Mauls in the area, um, maybe even also other Maul Dunn's. I'm mm. guessing maybe Anthony wasn't uh, a last name there. Uh, yeah. I have no idea. Didn't do that much research. <laughs> Anthony is uh, a last name here and think of one person with the last name Anthony immediately mm-hmm. off the top of my head Susan B Anthony not the person <laughs> I was thinking of oh yeah I forgot you <laughs> he leapt out of the depths of my brain just immediately <clears throat> I completely forgot about him <sighs> good I'm gonna bury him again right good. back in the recesses mm-hmm. of my mind Anyway, Maul Anthony, uh, she would have been born somewhere around the turn of the century since she's not really a real person. Um, we just kind of say the beginning of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, she grew up in the Red Hills. I have no idea where that is. Nobody will <laughs> really tell me. I Googled Red Hills, Ireland and found uh-huh. like 17 places. Oh. So yeah, helpful. Um, but then again, if you put in like Red Hills, United States, you'd probably get just as many results. I mean, Mm -hmm. Red Hills is super nonspecific. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's mostly how Maul came to be in most accounts that makes her legendary. Um, I am admittedly going to tell this next bit as like ambiguously as I can when it comes to details um, because I've poured over what's available and I cannot make heads or tails of how everything is supposed to work. Hmm. Um, I will explain after the story uh, why, but it's also not super important. The story by and large goes that two sons, sometimes it's just one son, are out one day when they stumble upon a funeral procession, just a couple of pallbearers carrying a coffin down a road. It is customary to follow the procession to just kind of join in, um, but the boys also find it a little bit odd. I mean, it's just these dudes with this coffin and like nobody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they pass by their own house, they like dip inside because they're going to tell their mom about it. Like, what's up with these like a couple of weirdos carrying <laughs> this coffin outside? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? Do you want to come gawk at it with us? That's um, a that's a tell your mom situation. Yeah, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I would do the same thing if somebody's walking down my street with a coffin and like there's nobody else around them. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I did the same thing with the man who carries the cross on his back, like Jesus Christ. It's like, mm-hmm. Did anybody else see that man dressed up like Jesus Christ <laughs> crossing right. like uh, Main Street? You go on your neighborhood Facebook page. Yeah, like if there was a bunch of people with him, I probably wouldn't have questioned it as much. But he was just yeah. by himself. Yeah, yeah, it's unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. They go inside to tell their mom when they all come back out to look at what's going on. The pallbearers are gone, but the coffin is still there sitting on the ground in front of their house. Mm-mm. <laughs> um, so they do what any white person in a horror movie does. Open uh, they, it up. They immediately <laughs> approach and open it. <laughs> oh, God. Let's crack that puppy open. <laughs> like an oyster yes um inside they find the body of a young girl um one account said that she would have been around 12 um in some accounts they take her coffin into the house and they place her in the coffin like by a fire um but in the end whether she's warmed by the fire or whether this happens like outside before they even like get into the home Mm -hmm. um it's the same results the young girl in the coffin wakes up and she climbs out um the family um because this is exactly what you do in this situation adopts her okay i mean it seems like it's their responsibility yeah they're like you're mine now they Um, did open up the coffin mm -hmm. it's kind of it's uh, it's on them now so i put that thing back where it came from (laughs) (laughs) right what else are you gonna do like shove her back in it's too late (laughs) you do that thing like with the traps where you put a couple things on the ground lead them to it and you've got like the (laughs) stick propping it open oh no No. (laughs) try to lure her back in there it's like Mm -hmm. if it's ireland in the 1800s we're poor (laughs) we don't have a lot of food like Mm -hmm. why are we adopting a dead girl why did you do this right why did they do it I don't know. Anyway, they adopt this child. Um, mm-hmm. And years later, she goes on to marry one of the sons of the family. Um, and she has has children. Yeah, it's very weird to grow up with her and then have kids with her. But if she was like 12, then maybe this only happened like three years later. That's and true. I can possibly forgive it. Yeah. It's still, it's still funky. Yeah. Um, anyway. One day, the girl, Maul, and the family decide to visit a fair. Um, Sometimes it's that one of the sons is going to go sell some cows. Uh, At the fair, they run into a man and a woman who cannot stop staring at Maul. Um, Mm. And eventually, when prompted, they say that she looks eerily familiar to Mm. them. Um, They're like, what do you mean? They're like, well, she kind of looks a lot like our dead daughter. Mm. Um, and so they start asking each other questions like back and forth, um, only to find out that the day that Maul was born, rose from her casket, is the exact same day that their daughter had her funeral years ago. Mm. Um, she even, by some accounts, carries the exact same birthmark as the couple's daughter. 
Um, so you'll hear Maul associated with uh, fairies as a result that she was swapped with a changeling at her death or that fairies were involved in her reincarnation somehow, but it mm-hmm. is pretty much accepted in her legend that she was reincarnated in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you care for the why I've omitted a ton of details from the story, um, as I've said, Maul is the daughter of uh, Anthony Dunn which is where she gets her name. But in the reincarnation story, the matriarch of the family is a widow named Mary or Widow Anthony, which is where Maul gets her name. Okay. So it it becomes confusing as to whether she was Maul Anthony before she died or after she died. Yeah. Um, I also admitted the fact that Maul in the reincarnation story is sometimes called Mary after the widow because her name was also Mary. Um, so she isn't Maul Anthony, she's Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's called this to tire to a woman named Mary Leeson who has an actual tombstone in County Kildare um, hmm. so that they can say like, oh, this was an actual person. You know, when she came back to life, she was Mary Leeson. Look, we have a tombstone. <laughs> right. um, but then it's like, well, then why in the story is the, the widow named, like called Widow Anthony? Mm-hmm. Like, let's just give rid of that detail completely and say mm-hmm. she was mall anthony and then she was mary lisa like how which way does it go i don't know right it's very confusing nobody agrees or will tell me how it works so yeah anyway um the only other story i have about mall comes from a collection of stories from school children from the 1930s that is online it said it was part of some project where they were essentially like interviewing their parents and i looked at that too did you? I mean, I didn't end the, up taking anything from it, but I know exactly. Irish heritage or whatever. Yes, yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. I didn't end up using anything, but I was reading through some of them. I was like, man, this is fucking cool. Yeah. So this comes from one of those. I'm glad you know the website. I do. Yeah. Um, according to one of those little snippets, uh, Maul was a reputed wise woman or a cunning woman, which is a profession I have discussed extensively here on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but in one story, she draws the ire of a local priest who denounces her as a witch from his pulpit. Subsequently, his horse falls deathly ill. Mm. People in town hear about his horse, know that he went off about Maul during one of his services and advise him that he should go make nice with her to cure his horse mm-hmm. uh, but instead he sends for a vet who cannot find a reason for his horse being sick at all so with nowhere else to turn the priest goes to Maul's house for help she receives him very coldly and tells him basically fuck off your horse is cured now keep my name out your fucking mouth Ooh. The priest returns to his house to find that his horse is galloping around his pasture as healthy as ever. Healthy as a horse. Yes. So (laughs) that's the itty bitty little story. Hmm. The only other information I have about Maul um, concerns her career as a wise woman. It's said that she could cure a number of illnesses in humans and animals, um, that she likely got the gift from fairies but that she used her own judgment about whether she wanted to help somebody or not um if she thought somebody was better off dying she would just deny their request for a cure i don't know what that means by if she thought they were better off dying like 
she hates them she like looks at who they are as a person <laughs> or like are they too advanced in their disease like what does that mean <laughs> it's whatever she just feels out the vibe yeah they're like hey could you help me and she's like mm, mm. No. Mm. can i get a better <laughs> answer than that can i get a why mm, no <laughs> honestly valid i'm just not feeling it yeah um also if it was the second time that they showed up on her doorstep she would turn them away um which mm-hmm. i find interesting because you'd think that she would want repeat business um but to me it's almost like she views it as an insult that somebody would have to approach her a second time like what she did the first time wasn't enough for like mm-hmm. didn't work yeah which i i could understand Right. But um, what if they were like, oh, my right knee was bad before and now it's my left one. Which she's is like, like oh, you should have f- figured your shit out. <laughs> go fuck yourself. It's none of my business. She's <laughs> like, you have too many issues. You complain yeah. entirely too much. You got too many knees. <laughs> <laughs> How many knees does a person need, really? <laughs> one. Two, it feels excessive. Don't be greedy. David, you can't just be coming to me all the time about your knees. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Malls Cures had ridiculously specific instructions you had to follow. An account says that a man paid her half a crown for three bottles of potion, two of which he got his first visit because, quote, no one with human power could have all three in their possession at once, which I find is like a neat testimony to uh mall's abilities mm-hmm. um on the way home from mall's house with the bottles this man was overcome with fatigue and kept hearing disembodied laughter and voices around him that he was tempted to investigate but mall had told him that he needed to head straight home or the bottles would vanish in his hands so mm-hmm. this was like trying to tempt him away from being cured mm-hmm. um nevertheless he persisted <laughs> At home, he took three teaspoons of the first bottle, then 24 hours later, took three teaspoons of the second, also rubbing some of the potions into his palms and soles, uh, taking care not to spill a single drop, which seems immensely difficult to me. Mm -hmm. Um, After this, he was allowed to go and retrieve the third bottle from Maul, which he had to keep on his person and keep safe for 24 hours before he was allowed to take it. Hmm. Um, if he didn't, he, his body would violently resist the medicine once he did try to take it and he would not be cured. Hmm. Finally, whatever was left of the third bottle had to be thrown to the wind and then voila, he would be cured. Hmm. That about sums it up for Maul though. Um, there's not much on her. She's just like a cool, uh, resurrected legendary figure. Mm-hmm. Um, So I want to move to my second wise woman, someone known as Biddy Early. Um, Biddy was born Bridget Ellen Connors or O'Connor. Sometimes I'm going to stick with Connors. In 1798 to parents John Thomas Connors and Ellen Early on Far Ridge, County Clare, Ireland. Um, Life isn't easy for Biddy, like at any point. Um, At 16, Biddy watches her mother die of malnutrition and takes Mm -hmm. over the household, only to watch her father die of typhus six months later. Ooh, must have been during the famine. (laughs) 
um, this would have been what, 1814? Mm. So early 1800s. Yeah, I guess not then. That was before the famine, but it uh, was pretty shit for a long time. Um, yeah, what I've come <laughs> to understand because they're like, she was born during this conflict when this was happening. I'm like, I don't have the time to read about this because all I know is if I start reading about this, I'm gonna have to read about the famine and I'm gonna have to read about everything that occurred in between. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that. I cannot shove 50, 60 years of Irish history into my brain right now well, for one worry, sentence. <laughs> Don't you worry, friend. That's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> Thank you. It's like, I want to know, but I don't need to know all of this to write yeah. one sentence of my story. Yeah. Um, that's overkill. Um, anyway, orphaned and penniless, um, penniless. She's forced to leave her childhood home. In another version of the story, though, she is an orphan. She's just forced to leave home and find work to help her family survive the turbulent political and economic climate in Ireland at the time. hmm Um, details about Biddy are all over the place chronologically. Some of her accounts put her using magic like much later in her life. I think it's during her second or third marriage. Um, some have her talking to fairies as a child, learning magic from her mother, um, and utilizing it in these like little episodic tales, um, before she's an established cunning woman, um, to hit the highlights of her life though. Um, Betty lives in a poor house at one point. At another, she lives in a home where the landlord evicts her. She warns him not to. He does not listen. And later he burns to death in a house fire. Mm, love that for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also didn't write this down, but kind of an alternate take on that is uh, a landlord you know, is going to evict her. The police are going to come like yank her and hers out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the way, the police like literally are like paralyzed in the road and they like cannot move, go anywhere, which we kind of saw, I think it was back with, um, is this with the bell witch um, mm. a long time ago, like Jackson's party when yeah. they were heading toward the house, they got stuck. Yeah. Um, so it's that same kind of thing where like, like freeze, they're stuck. They can't really do anything. They're a little freaked out about it. Mm-hmm. And then once Biddy like releases them from this paralysis, she's like, don't ever try and take me out of my house. <laughs> you should yeah. know better. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, somewhere in all of this, she meets a man named Pat Malley, who's twice her age with a son but they marry and they have a child. Sometimes it's a son, sometimes it's a daughter. Um, Settled, Biddy establishes herself as a cunning woman, but she does not ask for money as payment for her services. It's more of a trade, like, you know, just compensate me with whatever you've got, whatever you want to give me, whatever you can spare. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time, they just give her alcohol. Um, And because her- because her house is as a result just like super well stocked in alcohol um her place becomes a bit of a hangout for the locals Um, i want to be her so bad (laughs) (laughs) so come drink play cards get your fortune read just like chill out at uh biddy early's house hell yeah Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, Pat, Biddy's husband, dies when she's 25, and Biddy subsequently marries Pat's son, her stepson. And for that reason, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is, by some accounts, some people, like, skip over this one entirely. It's like, Mm. she skip Mm. over this one because it's unsavory, or because it's 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 i don't know is yeah. it real is it not real it's interesting yeah um in the same accounts that this marriage happens her child with pet grows up to leave the house and promptly loses mom's number <laughs> for which i do not blame him. okay yeah um the amount of weird it would be for your brother to become your new daddy while all of you are mourning your like old daddy's death Mm-mm-mm. um <laughs> nope 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 it's a little weird it's like mom i sat in my room and cried a whole bunch you and my brother that was weird what you did with your time you sat in your room and did something else something entirely (laughs) different i don't feel like we dealt with this correctly (laughs) everybody grieves in different ways uh i (laughs) grieve with my pants on (laughs) (laughs) title 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 (laughs) we don't even have to keep talking (laughs) anyway um the stepson will die about two decades later widowing biddy at 42 biddy immediately remarries this time to a man named tom and moves into a cottage at kilbaron where her fame kind of peaks They have a child, also Tom, who, as legend goes, dies when he's younger, but wanting in the afterlife to make sure his mom can, like, always support herself because she's not always going to have a husband to lean on. I mean, you just watch, like, one of them die. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two of them die. Um, Anyway, um, he decides to challenge a bunch of fairies to a competition. Fairies apparently are terrible athletes. Um, (laughs) everybody knows that i'm just imagining like a whole track and field kind of match between like this kid and a bunch of fairies yeah like hurdles and javelin what's the one where you spin around and you throw the thing shot put yeah that or discus Mm. discus yeah i'm definitely imagining that (laughs) the Um, fairy doing it but it's just super heavy they grab it and they just fall (laughs) clang (laughs) they're very pathetic it's it's not great um anyway um tom wins a magical blue bottle from them which he returns briefly from the dead to gift his mother biddy can collect herbs and things with this bottle but she can also look through it and see the past present and future and it becomes a staple of her business Mm, nifty uh late in life biddy attracts the attention of the catholic church in the area as one does Mm. um i mean you've got this old woman who claims to see the future can as we've seen with the landlord seem to curse people um she has a shit ton of alcohol in her house always has people over drinking and carrying on um she cures people blah 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 and she goes through husbands like people go through t-shirts not to mention the fact that all of her husbands literally die on her Mm -hmm. um and they're like hmm don't really like that uh yeah. that could stop that <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. 
Um, eventually in 1865, very late as far as witchcraft trials go, um, the priest, priests, why is that hard to say? Um, the priests bring charges against Biddy, but like half the town drinks at her house. So any witness they can produce that she's a witch just defends her instead. Good. I mean, could you, what, what would you do if they like put your bartender on trial or whatever? I, I would uh, not say a word. I I'd don't be know jack shit. <laughs> the least helpful witness in the entire world. I would never give up Byron. <laughs> I love the man. Your secrets are safe with Sarah Byron. <laughs> Absolutely. <a> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so the case ends with the church just dropping the charges because it's really not even worth it at this point. <laughs> really? Wait, really? They just drop everything? They just drop it. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's um, it's so late in the game. Like, witch trials aren't even really a thing anymore. They, like, yeah. resurrected this whole idea just because they didn't really like her. Yeah. And then everybody's like, nah. Nah, she's, we ain't. Biddy's cool. We ain't doing that shit no more. She's pretty dope. I mean, I, I love it. I love Ireland. Yeah. And the church is like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> Just forget we did that, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, they probably had like the parish priest over drinking at her house too. Probably. <sighs> anyway, awkward. three years later, Biddy, age 70, is widowed a third time. Mm -hmm. um, but the next year she remarries. <laughs> mm -hmm. At the age of 71 keeping it um, tight biddy <laughs> this time to a 30 year old man named I thomas her. i love her <laughs> yes um she offers it in exchange she offers um healing in exchange for marriage i was like offers um, what <laughs> <laughs> i skipped a sentence and i couldn't find the antecedent <laughs> okay okay um but yeah, he comes to her for healing. She offers it in exchange for a marriage. You got to do what you got to do. Um, Thomas dies a year later of alcoholism, probably Ooh. because he lives in a house surrounded by alcohol. Oh, no. <laughs> just everywhere. Every cabinet you open, everything <laughs> you lift up, just alcohol. <laughs> the bathtub is just always full of gin. You cannot light a match in that house. <laughs> Oh, poor Thomas. Uh, but yes, he passes away. Um, and then finally, at 76 years old, Biddy Early finally kicks the bucket. Um, there are two accounts of her death, which it kind of feels like a little bit of propaganda either way. Mm. Um, in the first account, Biddy calls for a priest on her deathbed who reads her her last rites. And then she uh, gives him her famous blue bottle and he like throws it in a lake and gets rid mm. of it. Um, the second account is the blue bottle like magically disappears after Biddy's death, um, likely reclaimed by the fairies who gave it to her in the first place. Mm. Um, and the second version to me, um, though it's like more circular like full circle to the story you know she got it from the fairies and went back to the fairies mm -hmm. um it feels like a response to the christian version of the end of her life as a very like a uh no she didn't suddenly become catholic and renounce her ways on her mm -hmm. deathbed fuck you um, yeah 
I ended up in a comment section at one point full of people claiming to be related to Biddy, one, um, but also people claiming to be related to the priest who read her her rights and took the bottle. So it's not like an unnamed priest. Like there are mm-hmm. people in Ireland who are like, it was this guy and I'm related to him. My Whoa. family told me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess you can decide how Biddy's life ended and what happened to her famous blue bottle, whether mm-hmm. you want her to have had like a christian death or whether you want it to end in fairies just mm-hmm. you pick dealer's choice <laughs> i pick fairies <laughs> always pick fairies yeah it's way more fun it is um i do encourage people to look up mall and biddy because there are a lot of variations to their stories i did not cover a lot of interesting like mini tales and stray details um and who knows you might also find comment sections like the one i stumbled upon with family members um and the stories that they have generations down the line um but this is mall anthony and biddy early two irish cunning women who have outlasted time that was really good i okay so the biddy story the way Mm -hmm. that it ended like the priest ending um I feel like that is an example of what I am like generally going to be talking about which is the shift from like um like pagan adjacent Catholicism in Ireland to modern traditional Roman Catholicism in Ireland I think that Mm -hmm. is just a fascinating example of a way of like resolving the issue of pagan stuff if it helps the blue bottle that she had also was said to not only contain herbs but sometimes holy water so Mm. like catholicism was still kind of built into like the pagan stuff that she was doing yeah yeah that makes i think that definitely like symbolically 100 percent is what you're saying that makes total sense based on everything I learned in the past um, 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> now that I'm a scholar. <laughs> <laughs> now that I have single-handedly mastered the entire topic of religion in Ireland, let me tell you a tale. Oh, God. That was good. Good job. Thank you. So I am not talking about a saint today. Um, There's only one 19th century Irish saint, and he's not even Irish. (laughs) Um, He just came over and everybody like made a big deal out of it. Um, A liar like St. Patrick. Yeah, I think he's Dutch um, from what I remember. He was not super interesting to me, so I did not waste my time with him. Um, Don't smite me, um, God. Um, and I wanted to <laughs> stick to 19th century Ireland because I always end up doing like, like you do a semi-modern one and I'm like, let's go back. back to the 300s <laughs> in the days of yore <laughs> <laughs> before the edges of the map were filled in. Like, <laughs> it's not relevant. Um, so I decided to talk about the Great Famine. Um, Outside of Ireland, it's commonly known as the potato famine. Um, They don't call it that in Ireland, apparently. Um, Yeah, they call it the Great Famine or the Great Hunger, 
or even sometimes the genocide. Hmm. Yeah, spoiler alert. Calling um, it the potato famine in my head suddenly feels rude. <laughs> <laughs> right, it seems to almost like, um, uh, what's the thing where you make something sound like a, like a kid? It feels reductive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like a kid. I think I might infantilize, <laughs> but that I don't know. Um, yeah, it is reductive. So the famine and its aftermath ushered in, among many other societal changes, the form of modern Catholicism that we still see in Ireland today. That's it was not a huge, me. Yeah, it was a huge turning point in the history of the Irish church. My sources are all over the frickin' place. I used a ton of different online ones for quotes here and there. I used book excerpts I found in blog posts and online encyclopedias, including old reliable Wikipedia. Um, But probably where I got the most information was actually a blog called Roaring Water Journal. It's run by a couple who live in Roaring Water Bay in West Cork. It's very cute. They write all about the history and culture of their town and region. Um, And they did a seven part, actually an eight part blog series on a particular church associated with the Great Famine that I'll talk about. And it was like really good. Like it wasn't just like, oh, cutesy little blog. It was like lots of sources were cited, Um, especially this book I really wanted to read, but was out of print. So like this was the next best thing I had access to. And I was able to fact check the majority of it. So I feel confident in using it. Anywho, let's get into it. Um, I will give a brief background on the distinctly Irish flavor of Catholicism found in pre-famine Ireland, and then one on the whole England shit show, and then we'll get to the famine. So what were the differences between pre-famine Irish Catholicism and quote-unquote official Catholicism? First of all, weekly mass attendance was much lower than you might expect. Um, At an estimated 30-ish percent, um, people were not going to church every week. One reason for this low attendance was that mass was either on the same level of importance or maybe even slightly of lower importance than the celebration of certain devotions. The most popular type of these devotions were those associated with holy wells. Ireland has hundreds, if not thousands, of holy wells, and most of these wells are not associated with Jesus or even with the Virgin Mary. Like a lot of times in other cultures, we see like holy springs associated with Mary. Not really the case in Ireland. Um, Instead, they're most commonly associated with a patron saint. Um, So townspeople would go to these wells on the feast day of the patron saint that the wells were associated with. Um, These were called patron days, which eventually got corrupted into pattern days. Um, On pattern days, townspeople, led by a priest, would process from the church to the well, where they would pray for cures for their ailments, among other things, while quote-unquote making rounds, which just refers to walking in circles um, around the well, while praying either the rosary or some other devotional. Um, After the boring part was over, everybody got wasted. (laughs) (laughs) 
They played games. They had horse races, drinking, singing, dancing. If the pattern was near the ocean, there was often nude bathing. Hello. Um, (laughs) And often these parties would last several days and would eventually devolve into fighting. It sounds like a fucking blast. (laughs) It sounds so fun. Um, So, of course, the church had to ruin it. Um, But first, England. Um, Basically, England has been involved in Ireland since they invaded it with the Normans in the 12th century. Um, They've had their grubby little paws all over it ever since. Um, During the Reformation, England declared Ireland a kingdom and granted Henry VIII the lordship of that kingdom and established the Church of Ireland, which was an extension of the Church of England. This was the beginning of the personal union between England and Ireland. And I think we've talked about a personal union before on the show, Um, but it's just when two or more states have the same monarch, but separate borders, laws, interests, etc. So it's kind of like a friends with benefits situation, except like in this case, England is the only friend that's benefiting. (laughs) Um, So the Anglican Church of Ireland was established in 1542 as the state church, but most of the native Irish people would remain Catholic. So what started to happen was what's called the Protestant Ascendancy, where gradually over decades, the old Gaelic Catholic order of nobility in Ireland was pushed out. These lords who were descended from like ancient clans whose families had lived on the same estate for centuries, um, and the Protestants, both Irish and English, took over their land when they left. Um, There were a few unsuccessful revolts by the Irish majority, and these revolts only ended, ended up giving the English crown more land that it then sold to more English lords. Um, the richest of these lords eventually controlled the Irish House of Commons. I'm simplifying like a lot, a lot, but that's what happened. Um, and again, the Protestant lords were only about 20% of the population. Um, there's an overwhelmingly Catholic majority that is not allowed to hold public office, which is enforced by the same penal laws that were enacted in England that also included heavy fines for recusancy to keep the Catholics poor. The laws also outlawed the Gaelic language, which is why so few people speak it today. Very sad, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I hate when languages die. Ew, can we not? Yeah, it makes me very, very sad. It is so sad. Um, So a big rebellion is inevitable. And it happens in 1798, led by the Society of United Irishmen, who were inspired by the French and American revolutions. The Irish rebellion was immediately squashed, and widespread public executions followed. The English army also increased their presence in Ireland after. And then, in 1800, the British Act of Union made Ireland part of the United Kingdom, Um, The act abolished the 500-year-old Irish Parliament and made Ireland subject to the British Parliament. 
it stated that Ireland would be represented by 100 Irish members in the British Parliament, but of course, Catholics couldn't hold public office, so they couldn't be representatives. Um, at this point, Protestants owned 95% of the land in Ireland, despite making up only 20% of the population. Not good. <laughs> So these penal laws would remain in effect for 140 years until Catholic emancipation in the year 1829, which was largely accomplished by a Catholic lawyer named Daniel O'Connell. He'll come back here and there as the story goes on. He's kind of like the one of the heroes um, of this time period for Ireland. But he was the leader of the Catholic Association and later the Repeal Association, which was the political group that wanted the 1800 Act of Union with England repealed. Um, so simply repealing the penal laws in 1829 was not like flipping a magic switch and everything was great again, obviously. Um, Ireland was still controlled by rich English Protestants who made up this aristocracy of absentee landlords. In some cases, these landlords never visited their Irish land, even once in their lifetimes, which is just like simply infuriating to me. Um, they owned it only to extract money from it. So we have this system where the Lord in England hires poor Irish tenant farmers to live and work on his land, and he also hires middlemen to collect rent from the tenant farmers. The middlemen were not supervised. They were free to extort the tenants in whatever way they wanted. Um, tenants could be evicted at the landlord's will for whatever reason, whenever. It could be something as simple as the landlord hears that oh, this season sheep are going to be more profitable than a grain crop. So I'm going to switch my land over to make it suitable for sheep. And my tenant farmer only has experience growing grain. So he's out of here. Sorry, you have to leave. Um, in most of Ireland, the landlord also claimed any improvements that the tenants made on his land. The exception to this was in Ulster, where they had something called tenant right, which gave tenants a bit more protection under the law. Um, but that was only in Ulster. All of this is like terrible enough, but probably the most heinous aspect of all was that all the money produced by this like tenant farming system didn't even go back into the Irish economy because all the landlords lived out of the country. So these tenant farmers would kill themselves working the land only to pay these crazy rents they couldn't afford. Their crops would be exported overseas and all of the money would go to England. So literally all of Ireland is dirt poor and already on the brink of starvation before the famine even starts. <laughs> I would have set some people on fire. It's not good, dude. <laughs> I just got on a boat, got over to England, and set some people on fire. Well, some people kind of did do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, in 1843, in typical, like, colonizer fashion, the British are like, what's going on in Ireland? Why is everybody so sad over there? It's like not a vibe in Ireland. As they're sitting in like their gilded chairs mm -hmm. and their gilded rooms mm -hmm. and they're like, 
what's so bad ireland's such a bummer like can we (laughs) zhuzh it up a little (laughs) um they're like why aren't the irish people thriving what's happening what's all this discontent these murmurings of rebellion again what's going on let's form a committee to find out so Daniel O'Connell wrote that the committee itself was laughable because every single member of the committee was a rich English Protestant um the British Earl of Devon a committee member who traveled to Ireland to observe the common folk wrote that quote it would be impossible adequately to describe the privations in which they the Irish laborer and his family habitually and silently endure. In many districts, their only food is the potato, their only beverage water. Their cabins are seldom a protection against the weather. A bed or a blanket is a rare luxury, and nearly in all, their pig and a manure heap constitute their only property. Um, That quote kind of brings us to the next point, which is the question of like, why was Ireland so dependent on the potato for sustenance why did they have this like monoculture basically it's surprise surprise the fault of the english again (laughs) um the land holdings were divided and divided again so that the english landlords could have more spaces to rent out um so they could collect more rent which sounds very very familiar nowadays Mm -hmm. um and so the plots of land that a tenant family could use were so small that the only crop that they could grow for themselves that was nutritionally dense enough to sustain their family was potatoes um there were many other crops grown in ireland There was no actual famine during the famine, because a famine means that all the food failed. Many other crops were were thriving during the famine. It's just that they were exported to other places, and the tenant farmers had to feed themselves with only potatoes. Dude, you know how much that would piss me off to watch all that food grow and then to just ship it? Yep. Ship it away? Exactly. Just to watch it, like, vanish. I'd be while, sneaking into fucking fields doing while shit. your baby starves to death. Just yeah. running through fields, shoving things in a sack, <laughs> taking much. it back home. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, okay, do you do that and risk getting killed and then for sure all your kids die? Or, yeah, it's, I mean, it's awful. Um, so now let's <laughs> make it worse. <laughs> Just pile on, Sarah. <laughs> I know. I told you it was a bummer. Um, so the famine itself, um, I guess like the chronology of it. So the cause of the potato blight was an organism called Phytothora infestans, I think, which is a parasitic organism related to brown algae. I don't know why, but I always thought it was like a fungus. Apparently not. It's like an algae type thing. Um The infection first appeared in 1844 and has been traced to the Americas, specifically one valley in Mexico. I can't remember what it was called, though. Um, The Irish newspapers were printing reports of this infection, even when it was still like only in the Americas. Um, But finally, in August of 1845, the British Gardener's Chronicle printed, quote, a fearful malady has broken out among the potato crop. In Belgium, the fields are said to be completely desolated. There is hardly a sound sample in the Covent Garden market. 
As for cure for this distemper, there is none. Um, in September, the Dublin Freeman's Journal reported on, quote, the appearance of what is called cholera in potatoes in Ireland. And finally, two days after that, the Gardener's Chronicle printed, we stop the press with very great regret to announce that the potato moraine has unequivocally declared itself in Ireland. So 1845 was not the first time that potatoes had been infected with disease <clears throat> with disease in Ireland. There had been a few other potato failures before, but nothing that would compare to this one. After the October harvest, it was clear that Ireland was in great danger. Crop loss in 1845 was estimated at one-third to one-half of what was cultivated. The following year, the loss was three-quarters of what was cultivated, and by the fall of 1846, the first deaths from starvation were printed. Um, reported, I mean. The Repeal Association, led by Daniel O'Connell, proposed making tenant right a law throughout Ireland to give tenants compensation for improvements that they made to the land. He also recommended following the Belgian example where they were also facing the same issue and stopping the export of other crops. Um, he argued that if Ireland had a domestic parliament, that's what they would do. They would stop exporting all their food and they would import food from other countries. But of course, because Ireland's parliament was English, they were not going to do this because that would mean that they wouldn't get any imports from Ireland whom they had come to rely on. So one of O'Connell's fellow repealers, John Mitchell, wrote a tract at this time that argued that the acts of the British at the onset of the famine constituted genocide against the Irish people. By continuing to export the food they'd grown without giving them, giving them fair compensation. He famously wrote, The Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. There were English lords who attempted to repeal some of the grain taxes to encourage the British crown to import more grain from the Americas, but party support was not sufficient to make this happen. There were grain imports to Ireland, but much of this grain had to be used for animal feed. So now what's going on is we have this vicious cycle where a tenant farmer grows a crop, sells it to pay his rent, the crop most likely leaves the country, and the money goes to the English lords who then fund Irish workhouses. These workhouses become so overcrowded with desperate workers who, you know, can't farm, so they have to do something else, that the workhouses are just the ideal breeding ground for disease, specifically famine fever or typhoid. Um, Father Nicholas McAvoy, the parish priest of Kells, wrote, quote, with starvation at our doors, our provisions are hourly wafted from our every port to go to feed the foreigner leaving starvation and death the sure and certain fate of the toil and sweat that raised this food. For their respective inhabitants, England, Holland, Scotland, Germany, are taking early the necessary precautions, getting provisions from every possible part of the globe. And I ask, are Irishmen alone unworthy the sympathies of a paternal gentry or a paternal government? Let Irishmen themselves take heed before the provisions are gone. Let those, too, who have sheep and oxen, 
self-preservation is the first law of nature. The right of the starving to try and sustain existence is a right far and away paramount to every right that property confers. Ooh, chills. <clears throat> I think um, we'll start hearing some dialogue like that um, pretty soon. We already kind of are here. Yeah. We've already got the rent issue. And mm -hmm. then after we started talking about the exporting stuff, I immediately started thinking about <clears throat> the fact that I work in a grocery store and it pisses me off to no end every time we have to throw away food. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because like, oh, the glue on the box came undone. Now we have to put it in claims. So I'm like, it's, it's still good food. It's, yep. It's mm -hmm. just the box that's damaged, but we got to throw it away when it yeah. could go to literally any of us who make peanuts. Right. It's awful. It's, I mean, it's the same thing. And it's been the same thing since like feudal medieval mm -hmm. Europe. Like it's, we're living in the same reality. I had a coworker the other day that she uh, was talking about somebody she knew and how he scams people. And so his money's <laughs> dirty. And I'm like, all oh, money's dirty. And she goes, no, it's not. I'm like, yeah, it is. Stop Literally. thinking about it. And she goes, well, we have jobs. Our money's not dirty. I'm like, think about our corporation for a second. Baby girl. <laughs> point, point to me in the direction of money that's not dirty. <laughs> Where must I begin with you? <laughs> Yeah. I do not have the time. I'm on the clock. It's a fucking <laughs> billion dollar corporation I work for. <laughs> that reminds me of this one time in a history class I was taking um, in undergrad where someone was like, we were debating, I think, like, should the federal government have the power to legalize gay marriage? I think like something like no brainer. Um, and she was like, well, you know, like the federal government, they know what's best. So we just have to do what they say. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Some people just don't live in the same reality. No, they blindly <clears throat> trust authority. It's yeah. Like, that is not the way to live your life. <laughs> it is. It's frightening. Um, yeah. So he, uh, yeah. Self-preservation is the first law of nature. Um, yeah, so 1847 is generally considered the worst year of the famine. It's commonly called Black 47. This was the peak of the mass emigration of Irish people, mostly to America. Hello, ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> I think my great, great, great grandfather, perhaps. Yeah, um, I've got Irish too. Yeah. Both of ours. Maybe they were on the same ship. Aw, the same coffin ship. That's what they were called. <laughs> so That's cute. That's terrible. And then they just immediately shipped them off to fight in our civil war. Then <laughs> oh. I'm on down to Dixieland. <laughs> <laughs> we're major fucking assholes, aren't we? Oh, it's bad. Every single thing I learn about the history of like the Irish people is so There's a reason I don't remember the Great Famine is because we learn that and then we learn the Civil War. The Civil War. Um, yep. So yeah, it's a footnote to mm -hmm. us being the main character. Yeah, but then um, it's like, okay, yeah, the first Irish regiment of Maine or whatever. It's like, yeah, where do you think they fucking came from? <laughs> <laughs> like, look at the chronology. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad I remember this scene in I think it's Gangs of New York 
where like it's Ellis Island immigrants are coming off the ship from Ireland and they're like here sign here to become a citizen all these men and they're like okay sign my name and it's like okay here's your uniform (laughs) (laughs) it was like an enlistment sheet so gross I know we're we need therapy (laughs) (laughs) slapped (laughs) I think slapped yeah Mm -hmm. anyway hello ancestors sorry about that um so the catholic church sent relief to ireland during this time lots of monarchs did too like um i think like famously like queen victoria gave sent over like 10 pounds and everybody was like are you fucking kidding me (laughs) wow thank you (laughs) so much (laughs) thanks love it um yeah so the pope also donated money from his own pocket i think he donated like two thousand pounds maybe it's like still not great but it's like could we have your gold chair (laughs) i'll take the chair (laughs) i'll take the testicle chair (laughs) (laughs) it's a callback um so unfortunately many parish priests died after contracting famine fever while giving last rites to their sick parishioners um and now we get into the relations between catholics and protestants during the height of the famine and how it changed the course of catholicism in ireland i'm going to focus on west cork because it was seen by protestants as an ideal missionary center partly because it was really hard hit by famine and partly because of its remoteness um protestant clergy and this is i didn't write this down because i didn't think it was important but it definitely is um this is part of like uh what came to be known as the protestant evangelical crusade um which was basically like (laughs) opportunism disguised as aid like they just kind of not most aid in like (laughs) yeah (laughs) the church that's true (laughs) and let's look at china (laughs) (laughs) right china africa like yes you're correct um so yeah and it was like everybody the protestants were real fired up like they were preaching like um the end times like fire and brimstone like convert convert and all this stuff like um repent from your evil ways Not of get popery. a on their fire and brimstone soapbox <laughs> oh my god they will not get down <laughs> right literally um so Protestant clergy would set up like churches, schools, and sometimes even like whole towns that they called colonies in Ireland, um, where they would offer food and clothing to poor Catholics, often on the condition that they convert to the Church of Ireland. Um, These Protestants were called supers, like S-O-U-P-E-R, because they tried to convert people with soup. I I would have been arrested or shot in <laughs> this time period. The amount of people who just blatantly insulted me that I just would have tried to kill. <laughs> it everything is such a, a heinous insult. They're like dangling clothes in front of me. And they're like, you convert, you can have them. Like, you want to meet me in the alley out back? <laughs> it's so fucked up it's real bad 
Yeah. Not Gucci. Things are not Gucci in Ireland. No wonder there wasn't a saint at this time period. Everybody's right. an asshole. Right. Either they were like drunk and fist fighting in the before times or yeah, everybody's just an asshole. So the word super was also used as a derogatory term for Catholics who did convert in order to not starve to death. So taking Aww. the soup was as bad as offering the soup, which how dare you not want to starve to death? <laughs> right. Which was actually kind of a big deal because this wasn't the case in every Protestant church. Like this wasn't these weren't conditional things in all of these churches. It was just like a few gave a really bad name and made Catholics afraid to go there for help because they were worried that someone was going to trick them or like their neighbors were going to look down on them like all this stuff so yeah it was it was it was bad um so in 1846 a protestant minister named reverend william allen fisher teamed up with parish priest father lawrence o'sullivan of kilmo parish in west cork to try to help the community in the minutes of a public works committee meeting they both attended on November 3rd, 1846, they describe the current situation in West Cork, how there is no food, the imported cornmeal has stopped coming in, they've tried to ask for help from the lieutenants to no avail, their parishioners are literally starving, every single person in the county is hungry, and that they don't know what else to do except to beg that these accounts be published in newspapers all over England. And their names are signed next to each other, the Protestant minister and the Catholic priest. It's very cute. Um, it's a nice moment of unity there. Um, it doesn't last very long, <laughs> um, but it's nice while it lasts. So Reverend Fisher, the Protestant, had a printing press, so he put that sucker to work, and he sent letters requesting aid to everyone he could think of. The aid that he received, he used to feed and clothe the locals the best he could. In 1848, he employed the poor people of the area to build a church. He specifically employed the poorest of the poor. He didn't want any farmers with like wagons and carts. He wanted it all built by hand so that he could give money to the poorest people in the parish. Um, this Protestant church would be called the Church of the Poor. Meanwhile, Father O'Sullivan was also fundraising. He would remain in his parish for the entire famine. He didn't abandon his parishioners. Some ministers and priests did. Um, both Fisher and O'Sullivan withdrew from the Public Works Committee because of, quote-unquote, dissension among the clergymen. So apparently there was some sort of falling out, most likely over Fisher and the other Protestants being seen as supers. There was definitely some merit to viewing them in a negative way, um, because of the Protestant evangelical crusade um, being like de so dedicated to eradicating every last bit of Catholic influence in Ireland in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but whether or not Fisher fed people on the condition that they convert, um, he did feed people, he did save lives. Um, and if he did make them convert, which he denied ever doing, and there's really no evidence that he did. Um, but even if he did, he must have thought 
that conversion was necessary to save their souls. So it's complicated. Um, in Protestant circles, he is obviously upheld as this like saintly figure. His son-in-law wrote about him, if ever a saintly man walked the earth, he was one. So the number of Protestants in Kilmo Parish and West Cork overall increased dramatically during the famine, but so did Catholic distrust of Protestant ministers, which sets up this really interesting dynamic in the aftermath of the famine, which came to an end in 1849 or 1850, depending on who you ask. Um, the most widely accepted estimate, estimate, <laughs> the most widely accepted estimate of Irish deaths during the famine is about a million. Another estimated million Irish people emigrated. Um, the population of Ireland still to this day has not really recovered from these losses. No, they um, are a lot smaller than us. I guess I have to put that in the correct context in my head. Right. It would be like two-thirds of the city of Chicago leaving or dying. That's a lot. Yeah, it really is. And th the total population at the time was just under nine million in Ireland. So mm. it's a big old chunk. Um, famine fallout continued for decades after and the negative sentiment toward the British for the lack of aid they provided continues to this day. Um, what I thought was interesting, though, I didn't write this down, but I, it just came back to me, and I think it's really sweet. So um, the Protestants had this, like, super association, but the Quakers, who were also active in Ireland at the time, were never associated with like superism like they just fed people and so to this day there's like sort of an understanding between um irish catholics and irish quakers like the common refrain from catholics is like oh they fed us in the famine so they're friends <laughs> <laughs> so cute um <clears throat> okay moving on so what did the catholic church do to try to win back the supers that had converted to Protestantism during the famine. They brought in the big guns. Um, one of the big guns was this guy, <laughs> sorry, this guy named John James Murphy. He was one of these historical weirdos who pops up and then immediately disappears off the face of the earth. Um, they're my favorite. Like, um, what's his name? The Angel of Philadelphia, the cream cheese guy. Yes. <laughs> he was fucking batshit <laughs> um, so john james murphy was born in cork and eventually enlisted in the navy um he went to canada and he lived with a group of first first nations people for 12 years um i don't know if he just like deserted or like got lost <laughs> um so this is from like a heavily romanticized biographical sketch of him. It reads, quote, a clearing in the virgin forests of Canada set the scene. There, a French Canadian priest has pitched his camp. He has no flower to make hosts for the holy sacrifice. And then down the little stream that bordered the clearing, there drifted a birch bark canoe paddled by an Indian. He shared his flower with the priest who was surprised at the soft cadences of the Indian's English. 
and no wonder, for the Indian was born not on the banks of the St. Lawrence, but on the banks of the Cork Lee. It was John James Murphy, one time an officer in the Navy, now a hunter in Canada. In the course of his journeyings, the Corkmen had fallen in with a tribe of Red Indians and had thrown in his lot with them. They initiated him into their tribe, crowned him with feathers, and dressed him in all the accoutrement of an Indian brave. To them and to all of the five nations, he was known as the Black Eagle of the North. <laughs> in Black Eagle's wanderings through the forests, he came one day upon a green glade in the center of which was a statue of the Blessed Virgin. And there in that silent glade, there came back to him the faith and the teaching of his childhood. Perhaps the spirit of some martyred Jesuit was hovering around that neglected shrine. So he returned to his tribe, washed off his war paint, relinquished his chieftain's features, and started off on a long trek down the Hudson River, across the broad Atlantic, over the European continent to Rome to commence his studies for the priesthood. <laughs> I, I, I know as much as you. <laughs> I like to think another committee was formed to sit down and write that. <laughs> <laughs> right, like how can we spin this? situation have him have him wash off his war paint <laughs> <laughs> well in his own in james uh john murphy's own account he says he includes the detail that he dismissed all of his squaws <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny but so racist right yeah no it's not <laughs> good no it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny though um <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck so yeah he comes like he doesn't belong in the story at all <laughs> so he's this like guy... celebrity guest <laughs> that they hired <clears throat> exactly you're like this is a real downer what can we do to pep it up a bit <laughs> let's go find this weirdo throw in this guy yeah <laughs> Um, so after he became a priest, Father Murphy was assigned to Kilmau, where he immediately went to preach at the Church of the Poor. Um, and he was just like going off on these newly Protestant parishioners. Um, I guess he just like barged into this Protestant church that he didn't belong in and was like, you are bad. <laughs> you need to repent. <laughs> I'm absolutely picturing somebody like Lockhart, but mm. also kind of mixed with like Dog the Bounty Hunter in my head for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he's got that like, he's a little crusty. He's like, yeah, he's not as much of a pretty boy as Gilderoy Lockhart. Mm -hmm. but he has a Lockhart vibe he seems like a con man mm -hmm. um yeah so he he urged everybody to abandon their new beliefs and return to the true religion um which was very effective he was a great speaker um electrifying in fact apparently that's how I heard him described um so he was like the first line of defense that the church sent in and then they're like okay we should probably follow up because this guy's kind of a weirdo um so they sent in the vincentians and the redemptorists which are two catholic missionary organizations who would come through the small towns 
and preach about like the evils of Protestantism and encourage people to come back to the Catholic faith. Um, what's funny is that they distributed a lot of food when they did this. <laughs> so a little bit of a double standard. Um, I think the logic was like, if food made them stray in the first place, maybe food will win them back. Um, it was very effective. Um, no shit. They were literally starving. <laughs> um, Reverend Fisher wrote to condemn these missionaries, asking where they were during the famine. Like, okay, you're just going to show up now that the danger is over. That's interesting. Um, of course, that question has a lot of merit. Um, but obviously, the church also had been suppressed by the penal laws for decades and impoverished by the absentee lords. Um, monasteries were dissolved. There was no money for seminaries to train priests or to repair churches. So I can kind of see both sides. Um, like, it, it's unfortunate, but like, it's just kind of how it went. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, probably the most important figure in the development of modern Irish Catholicism was Cardinal Paul Cullen, who entered the picture in 1850, at, right at the end of the famine. Cardinal Cullen was the first Irish cardinal, and he was appointed Archbishop of Armagh, which made him the primate, specifically the orangutan, of all <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> um, cardinal Cullen was so important to the history of the Irish church because he was a big proponent of ultramontanism, which is a clerical political faction within the church that places heavy emphasis on the teachings and the powers of the Pope. Um, Ultramontanism is a direct contrast to Gallicanism, which is the belief that civil authority, like a king or a president, um, is similar or equal to that of the Pope. So Ultramontanism says, no, the Pope is the authority, period. Um, so Cullen was sent to Ireland to bring Ireland up to the present, essentially to ensure that the Irish church was conforming with Roman canon law. Um, he recruited new clergy. He established many Catholic schools. He introduced to Ireland the practice of priests wearing their collars and being called father instead of mister by their congregants. Um, so you have Cardinal Cullen to thank for your attraction to any Irish priests that you might have. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Cardinal Cullen <laughs> is the reason that the Irish priests are so hot. Um, historian Theodore Hoppen says of this series of changes that, quote, patterns now stood condemned as potentially immoral wakes were to be sanitized, and all the other rites of passage, funerals, baptisms, weddings, brought under clerical auspices alone. While this did nothing to encourage an intellectual endeavor within the church, it proved highly efficacious in producing a steady stream of those dogged pastoral moralists who, armed with a rule book at once precise and immutable, could alone have furnished the kind of religious justification and guidance which important sections of the laity increasingly demanded and required, unquote. So basically it's like, people are smarter now. 
They're not dirt poor anymore. They're asking questions. And these ultramontanist clergy are the ones to handle all their new questions. Um, these important sections of the lady um, that refers to a new emerging rural class that would come to be known as the strong farmers. They were a group of Catholic farmers who had been sort of the middle class between the dirt poor tenant farmers, most of whom had died during the famine, and the absentee landlords. They were like somewhere in the middle. Um, most landlords had lost so much of their income during the famine or literally didn't have anyone left alive to extort from. So they lost their holdings. So we have a bunch of empty land now. <clears throat> so these strong farmers ended up acquiring a lot of the leftover land, and they very readily adopted the new wave of ultramontane Catholicism introduced by Cardinal Cullen. They became the backbone of Irish Catholic society, and they really had a hand in shaping Irish identity over the following decades. This identity was as fiercely nationalistic as it was Catholic. Most of Ireland finally gained independence from England in 1922 after the Irish War of Independence or the Anglo-Irish War. At that point, about 93% of Ireland was Catholic. This number continued to grow as the church applied the doctrine of Natamere, which stated that children of mixed Catholic and Protestant unions had to be brought up Catholic, which like even the idea of stipulating that shows you how much authority the church had in Ireland at the time. Like, mm -hmm. how would they know unless they literally could see everything going on? Which they could. <laughs> um, kind of scary. Not my favorite. Um, so I would go on. Um, but soon we'll start getting into the world wars. And as we've seen, that's not a great idea for me. <laughs> so that is the story of the Great Famine and how it changed the trajectory of the Catholic Church in Ireland forever. The end. I learned a lot more than I did in social studies back in like seventh grade. Um, and I'm going to retain a lot more because <laughs> they definitely did not get into like how much England was involved. Definitely. The only thing I remembered is that like there was a famine and mm -hmm. Irish people died. Like <laughs> had they talked uh, anything about how like the English were extorting them and taking mm -hmm. all of their resources and stuff. It's like, yep. What? Are you afraid that if you show us like the dangers of authority and power structures that we're going to start recognizing it in mm, our own <laughs> Interesting. It's like everything happens in a vacuum in social studies classes. Yeah, it's like all the potatoes didn't grow right mm -hmm. and then the Irish people died on to the Civil War. <laughs> so you know how I love the show Dairy Girls? There is a scene in an episode of that show. Actually, it's the same episode with the hot priest that I told you about a long time ago, where the kids are like studying for this huge test. Like they've stayed up all night studying and they're like, and Claire, the nerdy one is like freaking out because they haven't studied enough. She's like, we haven't even so much as touched the famine. And <laughs> Michelle, the slutty one is drunk and she's like, it's pretty simple, actually. They ran out of spuds. Everyone was raging. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
like, yeah, I mean, that's the social studies version. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> they ran out of spuds. Everyone was raging. <laughs> that's all you need to know. That's all they taught us. Well, they yeah. teach us a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I wish we could know the more complicated stuff because you can make complicated stuff interesting mm-hmm. and you can you can still dumb it down a little bit that I mean you could have made everything way more complicated than you did but you narrowed <laughs> like the scope of everything just to like the English landlords and what mm-hmm. was going on we didn't have to get into anything else right so then yeah. that's all you had to do I mean yeah I could have gone into a lot more detail about like um the the different sects of Protest- protestantism because it wasn't just the church of ireland like there mm-hmm. were methodists there were presbyterians and they did different things i could have talked about like all the different uprisings all over ireland but yeah, the basics you, are like not you simplified that. it and you still got to make it more complicated than there weren't enough potatoes <laughs> yeah they <laughs> <laughs> ran out of spuds <laughs> Uh, she's my favorite character on the show she's always drunk she's a total shit show love her so you're telling me that's another show that i need to watch yeah okay um i'm gonna tell you that i'm gonna put it on my list but Mm -hmm. we'll see if i watch it or not i already Um... watched one of your shows this year so (laughs) then that wasn't even a good one to watch i mean it was fine it might become a comfort show though because it, I could see it being something I could put on in the background and like ignore. It's very visually soothing. It is. Yeah. Dairy Girls is also a great comfort show like once you've seen it all and there's really there's only two seasons and they each have just a few like a handful of episodes. Um, Just make sure you watch it with subtitles the first time because their accents are indecipherable. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but it's it's a great comfort show too it's so good anywho ireland ireland back again it's always a good time when we're in ireland yeah i realized that the last time we were here was a long actually a long time ago like um the last time i wait no we did the the Bridget episode. The murder? Yeah. Where we both were talking about someone named Bridget. <laughs> <laughs> or Bridget. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was like, because I was thinking like, where do I leave? Where do I pick up from historically speaking? Like, what's the last historical event I talked about in Ireland? And it was all the way back at like the prophecy of the popes in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Which was forever ago. Uh Bridget Cleary. That mm-hmm. was oh, September 14th of 2021, almost exactly a wow. year ago. Wow. So it was a while ago. Yeah, and it was uh 1895. So hmm. I say a little bit after what I was talking about now, but yeah, almost exactly a year ago. There must be something about like the changing seasons. <laughs> and i'm pretty sure i may have picked that one too i don't know who knows 
but uh ireland yeah we're like uh, apple ciders on the shelves (laughs) ireland (laughs) maybe for me it's pumpkin beer that does pumpkin beer apple cider ireland ireland they go together i think it would be something like saint patrick's day but no apparently no that always takes me by surprise (laughs) anything in the beginning of the year takes me by complete and utter surprise and march is still the beginning of the year to me yeah i mean it's the the months never change the holidays don't move and every every year whiplash (laughs) the end of the year for me is just like falling headfirst off a cliff and i don't land until like mid-april yeah (laughs) i i can yeah this year especially i mean the the workplace fire was in march so i especially didn't have my feet under me until like april Mm -hmm. march and now it's august it's almost september it will be september when this comes out it will be (sighs) well this year's going fast this month has been long but this year is going fast guys it's basically christmas it you know merry christmas guys merry christmas everybody (laughs) happy new year happy saint patrick's day hello 2023 (laughs) i don't know a lot of months crazy world (laughs) it's kind of life works their months their days their hours (laughs) yeah i know it's crazy (laughs) sarah over here is having an existential crisis so um probably sign us off probably best to wrap it up <laughs> before it gets worse um you know how to get a hold of us uh if you want to suggest anything you also know how to get a hold of us please suggest things i'm severely running out of ideas mm-hmm. me too yeah quickly uh we'll post some stuff on instagram but other than that merry christmas <laughs> Sarah. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Blessed be. <laughs>